The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. To all the top cows and lower tier barnyard animals who love their comic books, thank you for tuning into this special bonus episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. You have joined us during a mystical, magical time of year that some would call the season of the witch, or for the purposes of our discussion, the witch blade. Yes, this time around, we are discussing the 1998 Wizards special publication focusing on the smash sensation witch blade from Top Cow Studios. Now, I may not be the host to the Witchblade or the Darkness, but I do my best to host a darn entertaining podcast. I'm Adam, and joining us this time around is a man who is very close to the history of Witchblade and that he was there at the beginning, writing, editing, and shepherding the adventures of Sarah Pazzini into the comic book stores, along with Michael Turner, Christina Z, and the rest. It's Dave Wool. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. I'm glad to get a chance to talk to you again. You know, we, we had a discussion about your current exploits in the world of comics a little while back, but now yeah. we're going to travel back in time. I want to ask you this. First of all, you know, Wizard had released a Top Cow special in 97, and then here you were again in 1998 being interviewed for another special issue, getting your photo taken, providing details on upcoming projects. So obviously there was a, a deep connection there. How would you describe your personal relationship with Wizard Magazine? in 1998 it was interesting you know um <laughs> i could jump forward just for a second yeah. like i ended up working for valiant before my current job and that was because of my relationship with wizard and fred pierce who left wizard he was the publisher of valiant and our relationship stayed going and he ended up hiring me because of our connection back then so i was just jumping ahead for that yeah you know um it, it was just interesting that you know top cow grew and wizard grew like kind of at the same time we definitely benefited from Wizards growth. The fact that they, you know, gave so much publicity to our characters and especially Witchblade and me as a creator, uh, Michael Turner as a creator, Mark as a creator. I would kind of say mutual benefit because I guess it was, but I felt like we benefited a lot more than they did. I mean, I imagine since they did two magazines on, you know, based on our stuff, I guess, you know, we were helping them too, but it was great. I mean, we used to go to New York and visit them and Congers, you know, play games in their office and, and just like meet with everybody and it was very you know connected um like you know we'd tell them what we had coming out and and like we'd get a lot of good promotion for it so it was fun and all the guys there you know like jim mclaughlin and matt senrich and i mean i ended up like staying close to a lot of them fred like i said you know once uh after they all went on to different places they were just a, a great group of people like what a group of writers they had even the the creative team and the designers, like, you know, like they were just all very good and cool. This is jumping ahead a little bit too, but Jim McLaughlin became the editor at Top Cow at one point. Did he take your job right after you or how did that work? Yeah, he pretty much did. Well, I was kind of, I moved over into like this quasi creative role. And then, yeah, he took over the day-to-day -day of the editor-in-chiefing because the relationship was so close. Yeah, that, that is like so Cotton, fun. You know, ended up working, you know, doing a lot of stuff and 
he and I ended up working at DC around the same time together. And I guess, is he still there? I think oh. he is. Yeah. That's the thing. Like we're going to get into all like the, the history of Witchblade and Top Cow and everything here. But the truth is you had a life of fandom and a career in comics before your time at Top Cow in the nineties. So we want to kind of explore real quick how that all began. Well, I grew up in New York. I went to the sort of like special uh, high school in New York called Hunter College High School, where you had to like, when you were in sixth grade, you took like a, if you did really well on your citywide tests where we had there a certain percentage of people would get invited to, it was like a free school but it was like a private school so you had to take a test to get in and uh we had some like cynthia nixon who was on sex in the city was there and like a whole bunch of people like a lot of creative kyle baker in comics uh, like uh, several other people in comics got their start there when we were seniors there they had this thing called the icy project which was uh intercollegiate year so like rather than take a whole like slate of classes you're supposed to do something to experience the world so they give you choices. And at that time, I kind of wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. I don't really know why. I really don't know why. Um, <laughs> but I, it's a long time ago. So they gave me like a list of choices. Uh, one of them was the Village Voice. was like the free newspaper in New York. There was another free newspaper in New York uh, where I could be like an intern. And there was another one for Marvel to be an intern at Marvel because Marvel interns there would go to different departments and you, there was something connected to the legal department. It was, it was kind of big. But my friends, when I was a senior, um, I had a friend named Mark Siri who, uh, who got me into comics when I was like a 10th grade. I wasn't really into comics. My dad would buy them when I was sick or whatever, um, but I was never really a fan. And when he and I became friends in this group we were in, like they were all just comic fans. So, so Mark would like give me his comics to read it was like a roger stern and john byrne captain america and x-men you know chris claremont and john byrne some weird things like megaton man and e-man and just like all these weird uh stories so i, I kind of totally got into them and then he and some of my other friends from high school were taking the internship at marvel so i just went along with them the the internship really had very little to do with legal anyway like we'd have like you know the indicia copy on the books to bring to the legal department and they would just sign it and that was pretty much the extent of it you know we made copies and would get things for people and like they had like this big like bin like the assistant editors would just like throw stuff into the bin with a post-it note on it saying you know make five copies of this and make eight copies of this at 65 percent. so you learn how to use a xerox machine and you get a lot of free comics plus we were like in the central spot back when when people were coming into the office a lot um so i get to meet a lot of people yeah like what, what year was this who was the editor-in-chief who was kind of in charge of stuff over there fall of 84 so uh, Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. Uh, Secret Wars was just starting. Yeah. So a lot of, like, Walt Simonson was working on Thor, and he would be in the office. And Chris Claremont was working on X-Men, and he'd be in the office. I think Walt was, like, the first person that I remember, the first creator that I really remember meeting. And we had a bullpen, you know, of uh, a lot of artists, and John Romita was there, and, you know, like, a lot of letterers and production, like Rick Parker and... Chris Iliopoulos was like a starting up letterer when when I was an intern there. So it was fun. It was it was really it was a really cool experience. You know, we used to go out with them and hang out. And so how did you make the jump to that? Because you became an editor, right? So I started in the editorial department. Like basically, if you were good enough as an intern, like they'd ask you to kind of stay on as an editorial assistant, which is like a paid intern, like once the summer came around. So I kind of stayed on that. Um, I worked with direct sales for a while with Peter David. Like they asked me to come work with them. So I was kind of sought after in my own little way. And then um, an editor, Don Daly, um, asked me to become his assistant editor. Um, but I was going away to school. Like I already made a plan to go away to, to college in upstate New York during my sophomore year. 
because I was going to school in the city prior to that. And he's like, it's okay. It's okay. Just work for me for a few months. So I went to him and was an assistant for like three months. And I worked on like Captain America and Transformers and G.I. Joe. And and it was really fun. This Steve Ditko book called Chuck Norris and his Karate Commandos. <laughs> um, and just some other like interesting yeah. projects. So I did that for a few months and then went away to school. But I totally missed working at Marvel. So I ended up coming back and ended up working for Mark Grunewald on Marvel Universe as like an editorial assistant on Marvel Universe. And I was there with him for like a while. And um, and that's really where I learned a lot of stuff. Like I learned how to do all the production things and learned how to typeset a little bit and um, like worked with him and Greg Wright. So I was there for a while. And then Howard Mackey asked me to be his assistant on the new universe book. So I, we also worked on Avengers and West Coast Avengers and stuff. <laughs> and then I left again and I moved to California to see what it was like. I worked for a newspaper. Mark Siri and I, my friend from high school, moved to California together. <laughs> but then I was there for like a year and decided I missed New York. So I came back and then worked at Marvel for the third time and then worked for Carl Potts. Oh, Bob Budiansky, I worked on trading cards. I got to know Jim Lee and Mark Silvestri a lot because I worked on the X-Men cards and the Marvel Universe cards. I worked on special projects. is really weird, like Captain America versus the Asthma Monster. And then Carl asked me to be an assistant for him in Epic. So I ended up working on Hellraiser and again, G.I. Joe and just some other really weird, like it's a whole group of projects. That was my last job at Marvel before Mark Silvestri asked me to go work for Top Cow. Yeah, and let, let me ask about that time because that early 90s period, right? Like at Marvel was setting the stage for the huge boom that was about to happen. And I'm curious, just from an insider perspective, what you saw building up from 84 to let's say 1990, right? Do you have any idea how the, the group that became the Image Founders managed to sell millions of copies of comic books at that point? Because it was just, you know, there was the collector's mentality maybe coming over from baseball cards. It was bleeding into the comic sphere. Was it just because you would work there, the Marvel marketing machine with direct sales? Like, was that just building, building over time? Like, what would you say allowed for that explosion to happen? Yeah, I guess it really was a combination of things. It was the the direct market, like growing and, and the collectors kind of coming to the direct market and buying books. Like the whole phenomenon of alternate covers and um, exclusive covers and, and all sorts of different things. I mean, like by the time, I was working on G.I. Joe, I remember it was such a regular thing to have like poly bag trading cards like in the in like 92. Yeah, with Todd McFarlane's uh, Spider-Man. Yeah, it's sort of like the late 80s for some reason. Like the collectors came to the business. I remember books like that, like people would, would buy like hundreds of copies like themselves. Like that's when the speculator market like really kind of took off. I mean, it was definitely a combination of really, really good books. These artists that definitely grabbed hold of like people's imaginations, like Jim Lee and Will. But yeah, all the image guys, basically. And then every time they launched a new book, the sales would just go up, you know, like because around that time, like in 1991, 92 was like, you know, the X-Men splitting up into Uncanny and then the new Jim Lee X-Men. Like right when he was doing our X-Men trading cards, he was that was he was doing that at the same time. I don't know how he was able to do so much. He was crazy. Busy. <laughs> yeah, just the X-Force and everything just like exploding in a big way. And then so having like, you know, like all those several Spider-Man books. Yeah, X-Force um, with Rob Liefeld and... And I remember like even in the office, it was kind of the same debates that were out there in the world, you know, like like people would, would ask, why is Rob so popular, you know, and, and like and it was like really cool, you know, it's like like people were just like acknowledging these different art styles and or Jim Valentino and being like, you know, really cool with them. And and it, it kind of expanded what was popular, you know, and, and who was popular. But then but I remember Suzanne Gaffney, who was like the assistant editor of, of like X-Force, you know, was like was saying, look, you know, you could say what you want, but you 
you know, like he's selling like a million copies. So I don't know what your times change, you know, and and then he's he's definitely like latched on to like a generation of people, you know, and and there's no reason to to question it that that he's not you know doing this classic style, but he's grabbed people's attention, and that's what's important. And I feel like there's a lot of even people on the inside like weren't quite understanding like where it was going and what it was about, and I think that's what led to Marvel having this sort of um, moment where they were like, you know, no, it's not. It's the characters. It's not the creators. We can't let them push so much. And then that's what made them want to leave and do their own thing. And that's what I want to hear about now, because you say you're getting to know Mark Silvestri as you're working through the trading cards. He's doing a lot of work there and things like that. How did Mark Silvestri approach you to say, hey, by the way, we're leaving. We're setting up our own thing over here. Uh, well, there was like, it was like a year later. I wasn't like part of the inside, like, you know. Okay. <laughs> no, um, he had started, I think they started in 92 and, and they hired me like, I think Cyberforce maybe three had come out when I came and started working with them. Like I was working on the fourth issue and that was, they weren't coming out too regularly around then. So it was probably like a year. I, I'd actually talked to Jim Lee about going to work with them earlier. I think they left in the summer. And I think like in January, I talked to Jim Lee and then, in, or then a few months later, I ended up talking to Mark and, and taking his job. Okay. Now, were you ready? Like, were you just buying into the excitement of a new thing or what was your decision? Okay, well, I'll leave Marvel. I'll go do this. I would say 40% of it was that I wanted to move back to California. Some of it was some personal reasons that I was, I was, I really wanted to, to get out of where I was, but nothing to do with work. I mean, I loved working at Marvel. It was so much fun. Um, and I loved the people there. And, and, you know, like I said, I used to go out with them. You know, it was like, it was kind of my life. Well, I was going to school full time too. Like I really wanted to graduate college and ended up not graduating. I left like, like I was nine credits short of graduating when I left. But yeah, it was there was definitely like an appeal to to be part of something, you know, from the ground up. I mean, at that point, Top Cow was like four people. There was Mark's fiance and and he had an, a sort of an assistant named Robin. And then everyone else he worked with was were people who were connected to Jim Lee, like Scott Williams was his anchor and Joe Chata was his colorist and and they were at the same office. So it was it was basically just to be part of something that was growing. Let's jump ahead a little bit because I know you know you're you're doing some Cyber Force, you're doing the ballistic miniseries, you're you're doing a lot of different things at Top Cow, but then you get to this point where leading into a new phase, kind of moving out of superhero action, and maybe there's a little something mystical around the corner, which is this Witchblade concept. And in this special, there is an, a, an interview, it's called Blade of Glory, where it's stated that, you know, initially you and Brian Haverlin were working just on a concept involving a sentient weapon. And yeah. can you take us from that point, like, hey, we're talking about this, to where you're bringing on the other members of the Top Cow team and how the idea evolved into its form for issue number one. Yeah, like, so yeah, so we started out because we were both fans of like Michael Moorcock, Elric, you know, a, a sentient weapon that had a mind of its own. And I think it was more like, we just wanted some more variety. It, it's weird, like in, in retrospect, it seemed like we were just trying to cash in on the bad girl craze. But in reality, I guess I felt more comfortable writing women. Um, I kind of wanted to. So I think we both were really into doing like a grounded story. I think up until that point, like all the characters that we had put out were very like, like, you know, superhero based and Weapon Zero was like really heavy sci-fi. And at that time, I think X-Files was just sort of taking off. I guess I always wanted to do like a cop drama or something. So I think probably like we had a lot of basic ideas for what we wanted to do and then just figured out a way to merge them. I always like stories where it's just like one
on, it's like something you try to do. I mean, in retrospect, it doesn't seem that realistic, but basically a realistic storyline with some kind of fantasy element thrown into it, you know, um, from Witchblade on, like a lot of our stories were just, were like that. I mean, Darkness was basically the same thing, if you narrow it down. And I grew up in New York, so I felt comfortable doing something in New York, even though Marvel does all their stuff there. So yes, yeah, so we just kind of built it out from there. Like I knew I wanted it to be in New York. I knew it wanted to be a woman. We knew we wanted this, this Witchblade as being the things. And it seemed like making her a, a police officer was a way to just like get her into situations that the the witchblade could do something in um i was really into like new york landmarks and stuff i was kind of i really would like sit and do research and think about what to i realized that that's probably not that important you know well to me it was at the time but in re- it wasn't really after the fact mike never really liked to draw them i don't think so i mean we did the statue <laughs> well, and i'm curious as you're conceiving just the idea of the witchblade itself was there a particular element of it that excited you most was it that it had like ultimately as you revealed a history of other bearers of the witchblade was it that it had like the ever-changing kind of look to it when it would manifest like yeah, yeah to me the history of other bearers i think was really important because i remember really early on thinking of uh someone like joan of arc like thinking of all these people that you know that had some kind of mystical story about them that we could kind of latch on to and and it could seem kind of historical and yeah, that was really important to me. So, I mean, it was really early on in the process that we went over to, we went to Mark and and talked to him about it. And Brad Foxhoven was there for a lot of it to kind of help flesh out the character. Like once once we knew what we wanted with the Witchblade and, and Sarah Pizzini, uh, I'm not think probably didn't have her name yet, but probably she was just Sarah. Then we came to Mark. And then once it was decided that Mike would be the artist on it, I mean, he was probably already on to Ballistic. And because we took him off ballistic, I think to, or maybe it was a striker story. I don't know, whatever it was, it was really quick. And um, and Mark like suggested Mike for it. So then once he was going to be the artist on it, we kind of all started working on it together. And Joe Benitez, I think, was really heavily involved in the in the design of the character, of the way the Witchblade works and the, the Witchblade stuff. Because that was it was definitely his strong point was the kind of metallic alien technology thing like he was really good at that yeah now another player in this game uh, eventually here is christina z and she got a lot of play in wizard she was kind of an anomaly in comic books at the time you know for being like yeah, jim mclaughlin was definitely fascinated with christina z yeah <laughs> he sort of pit us against each other a little bit even. Oh, I mean, really? <laughs> because he'd be like i'm sorry you can't be in the top 10 because she's in the top 10 you know as a writer and i'm like like it, it was always very like um nebulous like who the voters were of uh <laughs> yeah oh definitely yeah like she came along a little bit later like once the basic idea was set i think i remember uh starting to talk to her when like issue one was probably being drawn and i've been writing ripclaw like we were doing ripclaw and witchblade at the same time and i wasn't so happy with the what i was writing it was just a little too boring like i don't know why i started showing her things but we were just started talking we met like in some probably the wizard chat maybe i don't know i used to host this wizard chat on aol like every week and like a lot of people that i'm still friendly with i i met like while i was hosting that wizard chat so, um, so she wasn't even working in the office yet you brought her no in. no no she definitely wasn't no i met her i met her on aol like oh wow okay and then just started talking and then i showed her i don't know i should show the rip rip claw that i was writing and then showed her the Witchblade i was writing and and she like was an editor like she i basically asked her to, to edit me you know to help make me better like she was like tearing my stuff apart and telling me like you know this is generic and this is you know like not not holding any punches and, and i wasn't really used to that like mostly the people that i work with as an editor were just like you know i mean the the most extreme you know mistakes i made they would catch but beyond that it was just like let me do what i want which i thought i wanted 
wanted. But then I knew to grow, I needed someone to kind of push me. So she was there to push me. And then um, I, I saw that she had a lot of really good ideas herself. So we ended up sort of bouncing back and forth. So like after the first issue, she got more involved in the in the story creation and Mike got more involved in the story creation. And then actually her and I would kind of write different parts of the story and then go over each other's stuff. And then, um, and then Mike would go over it and make his suggestions. So. Oh, interesting. Okay, I mean, because obviously, like women writing comics wasn't like a new thing. You had Joe Duffy and Anna Senti and Louise Simonson, people I'm sure you interacted with a lot in yeah. your in your early days. Colleen Duran's doing her own thing and the independent sphere. So, like that was the thing. But it just felt like Wizard was just like, can you believe a girl writes comics? And then, but then here you guys are, you know, working together. Speaking of which, there is an article that's basically a transcript in this issue called Plotting a Main Course, which is you, Christina Z, Michael. Oh, yeah, I saw that at the dinner. I noticed how cheap the dinner was. It was like 40 bucks for the three of us. Well, and I want to ask about that because, you know, you guys are sitting around plotting issues 22 to 24 of Witchblade, but you're at this restaurant and there's a table that you're waiting for. And Christina basically sets you out to irritate some other patrons so that you can get there. You go over and fake a coughing fit nearby because it was an outdoor seating thing. And then they got up and left. And so legitimate. I'm not, I'm not sure if that really happened. I mean, it might've, I don't really remember that well, but I don't think I would cough. I think that's a little gross. I might just clear my throat a lot. I could have done something like that. I don't know. It might have just been Jim McLaughlin like saying that. We've learned this with Jim's writing because he would do these odd locations. Like he did an interview with Adam Kubert at White Castle at one point. And he created this whole thing about we had an eating competition and Jimmy Palmiotti was there and Andy Kubert was there. And then somebody online said, oh yeah, well, I talked to Adam when I went to the Kubert school and he said that never happened. <laughs> so Wizard Baby was adding some flourishes. To yeah, make- it might it might have been made up I, I i really can't remember <laughs> so it's possible but it was fun but just going over what you were saying so by the time we were at like the 20 something she was way more uh involved in the writing and i was more of an editor and she was more of a writer at that point yeah d- during this period as well leading up to these issues you know obviously tales of the witchblade had come out given was that always just meant to be like a bunch of different writers or was that something she was shepherding like because it was kind of pushed in wizard like oh this is christina z is getting her her own Witchblade title type thing at one point. So. Yeah, you know, like I probably when it first started, because I know she pitched the Aunt Bonnie was someone that she always loved. So probably at that point, maybe it was considered. But I think making it more open to more like writers. I mean, I totally forgot about that Warren Ellis intro. That, that was like pretty cool. That's pretty funny. Uh, yeah. But I love and I remember, you know, him working on his Tales of the Witchblade story. That was really cool. And, and Garth Ennis did like kind of a quasi tell of the Witchblade story because it was like a darkness, the medieval spawn Witchblade story, which is sort of a Tales of the Witchblade story, but cooler. I, I know people are like dedicated to, to mainline, you know, Sarah, Witchblade, the, you know, all the, the decades that's been running. But Tales of the Witchblade appeals to me so much. Like I love just yeah, like the too. one-off stories and you but you get so many cool characters that come out of that. And you're just like, wow. This yeah. Is- yeah. The one that Warren did was really cool. Um, I, I kind of wanted to do more with that. I think that was Jim McLaughlin who definitely was, was heavily involved in that one but i thought it came out really cool yeah now as this is all building we're talking about issue one comes out and it gets a lot of buzz what was your first indication from outside sources that witchblade was going to be a success interesting question so we had no idea. I think at that time it was kind of weird because we were having issues with Image and then there was, I think when Witchblade 1 maybe or 2 came out, one of them, we had left Image for a little while and we're trying to be on our own. And we did, we had done a Psyblade She with Bill Tucci, 
that introduced Witchblade, I think, for the first right. time. Yeah. And um and we that was when we were out when we were outside of Image. We did that on our own and we saw how that sold and that sold really well. And it was a very it was a great collaboration. So we were hoping it would do well. And Michael, you know, seemed to be getting like a, a group of people who enjoyed looking at his artwork. So it was definitely exciting. Like, I think Wizard probably helped tell us, you know, that this is going to be pretty big. And then we saw the initial number starting to come in and it just we realized that it was going to be a hit. We didn't know. You never know. At that time, things were still selling really well, too. I mean, not as well as they were a couple of years earlier, but but still really good. And we had we had we put Mark's name on it, you know, to make sure everyone knew like it was one of our like top cow books but it was still sort of a surprise oh okay obviously michael turner's contribution got a lot of eyes on it not that he was a name yet but suddenly everybody said what is this art like we haven't seen this before so there's a how to draw witchblade tutorial in this issue that they put in there so he'll break it down for you but can you recall obviously you had been working with him but when you first saw the witchblade art come through that he was producing like was there a specific reaction in the office did you guys have a buzz or again like you said it was just like well, we'll put it out and see what happens. Oh, no, no, no. We totally had a buzz. Um, Like all the artists would kind of like watch what he was doing. And he just, he, he grew so fast from the, the striker book that he started to uh, ballistic. You know, that's why we jumped him onto a witchblade so fast. He seemed like he was ready so quickly to launch a new book. No, it, it was striking to see, you know. I mean, I guess because you even you could look in that book, in the wizard book, we were talking about plotting Witchblade 20 whatever. And at the same time, like, so he was jumping from 25 to fathom number one. So that was over like a two year span, basically. He just exploded. But yeah, we definitely had a sense that there was something special about him. I mean, I remember from seeing a sample, from seeing the way he could draw trees and cars and and people, you know, like beautiful women and muscular men. <laughs> yeah, he, he just seemed to have a talent. <laughs> like he just needed to to build on his storytelling because that's that's takes the longest to come out. But there was definitely something special about him. Yeah. Speaking of that, let, let's jump on that real quick because this issue did come with, a, you know, a Fathom Zero issue packed in and there was a special edition that Wizard released and, you know, he's, he's with the book for several years and then decides to kind of go into his creator-owned thing. Now, you mentioned earlier that period that Top Cow separates from Image, a lot of that was wrapped up in Rob Liefeld from what was reported. Mark Silvestri was very clear about that in the pages of Wizard and saying that like there was like the explanation, I think, in the uh, Image documentary at some point that Rob Liefeld was trying to get Michael Turner over to his studio and all that. But eventually during this point too, it, it was kind of floated like when Cliffhanger started with J. Scott Campbell and Joe Matarera that Jim Lee might be trying to get him over there. So do you recall with Fathom coming out, was that a way of like keeping this new sensation in comics creatively satisfied, keeping him at home? Like, was that kind of the idea behind it? Like, okay, you could leave Witchblade, you could do your thing. Like, how did that come yeah, together? Yeah, I think um there were so many opportunities for him at that point. And yeah, it was to basically allow him to have his own imprint, you know, within Top Cow that, that could satisfy both, you know, where he basically had a creator-owned deal within Top Cow that could match whatever deal he could have in other places so you know he could he could keep doing what he wants and he could keep doing it with us which we were basically his family you know that he grew up in comics with so like all things being equal and all things i think all things were being equal so like he could have moved on i think probably and gotten a better deal somewhere else even then like you know whatever the percentages were of what he got at top cow but i think the family part of it was important to him so i think he ended up staying there because even like 
when ultimately, I don't know, I guess it was five years later or six years later. Yeah, where he does Aspen, yeah. Aspen. It was really, you know, the whole like internal nucleus of Aspen is all top cow people and still are. So I think that was very important to him, you know, the whole family aspect of it. Yeah. Now during this period that Witchblade is growing, it's just getting more popular. Like you say, Wizard is really pushing it and just naturally in their top 10, they're polling, you know, all the stores around the country saying, what's your top book? And Witchblade is like top, top 10 characters, top 10 sales for books and things like that. Wizard claims in issue 82 in 1998 that Top Cow was the biggest company in sales right behind Marvel and DC. That seems hard to believe, but maybe you can confirm that. And I want to know, as sales increased on Witchblade and eventually through the darkness, was what was like the biggest change, if any, at Top Cow? Did you notice a change? Like, were the sales really like making a difference? I, I can't imagine that Top Cow on its own could have been that because we didn't, we never did that many books. So probably the way you look at it, you know, if you're talking yeah, about- Yeah, Wizards like, tweaking it for a headline or type thing, yeah. Or something, I don't know. Well, I mean, Another thing that we, for the maybe two year or three year span, where we were like a really you know, well-run machine where we had people that were specifically there, like Renee Gearlings and, and Mary Buxton were both just trying to make sure that everyone was on time. On time was really important to us because we were notoriously late at the beginning. And then around that time, we kind of just totally shifted into this, getting our books out on time every month. We had this guarantee, I think we did. I'm not sure what the guarantee was. I remember those ads, yeah. <laughs> like for a couple of years, I think, that totally helped our sales. Like when people knew that our stuff was coming out regularly, everything kind of grew. And it was just it was impressive you know because we we had like this run you know like like in that wizard magazine you know we had ascension and you know spirit of the dow and, and all our guys like kind of going and doing their thing the weapon zero continued with benitez and they all like you know had a, a good life of their own brandon peterson you know was working on his books he did the arcana his uh, medieval spawn witchblade book and it was just it was a really cool time, you know, like like we we were able to launch these new titles with great creators and, and they would do well. One of the other things that was reported on in the Top Cow special that predated this one was that as this Legend of the Dow was going to be released simultaneously worldwide, multiple languages, the first ever comic book to be launched everywhere all at once. And I was just wondering if you remember that at all. Was that just marketing hype? Did you guys really attempt to do that? Was it a hit in any other country? Yeah. I'm not even sure. I don't remember that. Um, I mean, it could have been because at that point we had a really good licensing deal. Like I remember seeing Witchblade in Turkey when I was there. So it might have very well, you know, been released, but I'm not sure like what that. <laughs> that wasn't anything you were betting on. Like, oh, this is going to be the big one. Okay. No, no, no. I wasn't really too involved in the, in the farm licensing. <laughs> one of the big changes, it's said in here that this was the plan from the beginning is that you wanted Top Cow to be multimedia. You weren't just focusing on comics. You wanted to take it into the entertainment industry at large. So Witchblade actually makes it to TV on the TNT network, produced by Oliver Stone's production company. Obviously, Jim, Todd, and Eric, they'd all dip their toes into animation, you know, to varying degrees of success. We tried yeah. with Cyberforce, and it went right. kind of far with uh, Fox Television, but then it fell through. Yeah, you tried with Cyberforce, and then it happened. Witchblade finally happens. What do you remember about the development of the Witchblade TV series from page to screen? What were you involved with most what stood out to you well i remember having a lot of meetings first at with oliver stone who wasn't really much in, he would show up at the meetings but he didn't seem like he really 
was involved so much. It was mostly his his executive producer, Dan Halstead, who really was hands-on. And then it was a long process to actually get a network behind it. The head of TNT at that time was a guy named Spike Selden, who ended up joining Top Cow, like maybe a couple of years later. And he was a huge fan of, of Witchblade and Top Cow in general. So he actually was the guy who brought it to uh, to TNT. And then I just remember having meetings there and, and just the head of TNT suggesting she should have a dog and, you know... Um, <laughs> It was like a whole bunch of, of maybe we should go this way. Maybe we should go this way. They were really good about running stuff by us and, and taking our suggestions. But it was a huge collaboration. Now, during this period, obviously, Wizards' big thing was casting calls. They loved like kind of priming, like, oh, it could be this person. So there were a lot of actresses that were being teased, at least in Wizard. They're saying like Natasha Henstridge or Yasmin yeah, yeah. covered Electra. Was there any other actress that you recall getting close to the role before Yancey Butler? Vanessa Marcel, she was big at that time. She ended up doing something else. I know they went kind of with her. They kind of got into Yancey pretty quickly, though, because she was a good actress. And she had done this movie with Wesley Snipes, Drop Zone at that time, and this Man and Machine show on TV that, that people liked. And uh, so I think they gravitated toward her pretty fast. And, and we liked her. So it seemed like a good deal. Now, I'm curious to just get your opinion on you know how it turned out, because although it was a pretty cool show, the main complaint heard from most fans, right, is that she never had had the full Witchblade look from the comics, you know, for any like the time. She had the gauntlet and that was about it. So do you think that design would ever fly, even with today's special effects, or would it always have to be more grounded like the 90s version? I don't know. It probably depended on on what network it was on. I could see if it was on sci-fi or something, maybe. And actually even because, like I said, Spike, who is the fan of it, he ended up leaving TNT before the show even got made. Oh. So I think if he was in charge, maybe it would have been a little closer to it. It's hard to say because I, I could see them thinking they'd be offending too many people with it. So, you know, maybe they wouldn't do it. They would try to do it tastefully or something. So, yeah, probably the way it came out is the way it would come out in most places. The one thing I just also want to bring up in the multimedia sphere is that on the back of this issue, they're promoting Songs of the Witchblade, a soundtrack yeah. to the comic book. And this is actually not even the, the only one they did. Later on, there was another Witchblade soundtrack that got I released. I think later on was the one connected to the TV show. Yeah. Yeah. So so th there was just a lot of cool stuff there. But uh, did you ever get to put in like, hey, what if we brought in this person? Or did you have any involvement at all in, in putting that together? I, I kind of remember Christina was a little more involved in that. Because it says okay. Conceived by all three of you. Like Brad Foxhoven, I guess somehow he met this Tim Carr guy at Geffen Records. And I remember having a meeting or two at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. And I remember meeting a couple of times Kat Bjellen from Babes in Toyland. And she would talk about like, you know, how she envisioned it. Uh, I think we threw out, the, there were definitely names that we threw out. I think everyone was excited about the Peter Steele from Typo Negative, like being involved in it. And I know Christina's like a huge music aficionado. So I'm sure she had a lot of suggestions for it. I think her and Mike actually would like talk to Kat and had like, you know, meetings where they would just go over like, you know, the ideas for the songs and stuff. So we definitely were involved in it. I think at that point it was maybe they thought that that doing this music thing would help get a movie made because it was before the TV show was was going, but it didn't. It's a real fun package. It was very, you know, of the time, but it, it's a very, a very cool look. Now, the other thing that's in this issue that's just really fun, Wizard always, you know, they'll do the interviews, they'll do the histories, they'll do whatever, but then they always like to throw original art into their books, especially at this time. So they have a piece that was called Girl Power, and they say, ever wonder what your favorite superheroes would look like if they oh, had a Yeah. 
Yeah, so we'll go down the list, but I want to hear which one is your favorite or if you think there's another character that would be interesting with the Witchblade. But they have Leonard Kirk drawn Supergirl. She's got these full-on wigs and everything. They have uh, Louis Small Jr. doing Vampirella. They have, of course, Stephen Hughes doing Lady Death. Kachu by Terry Moore from Strangers of Paradise. That one's that was my favorite. Oh, okay. That was my favorite. <laughs> that one's hilarious. That one's great. Uh, they have Howard Porter doing Wonder Woman. They have Billy Tucci, you know, former collaborator there with She. And then finally, Jim Ballot doing Catwoman. These are just like all interesting ideas to mix. I, mean, I personally think it makes the most sense for Lady Death. But at the same time, it feels like her costume kind of already looks like that a little bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And they go even more top topical of the moment because they have Ryan Dunlavy who we've interviewed for the podcast who's a cartoonist and a lot for them but they have like you know what if Hillary Clinton had the witchblade what if Fiona yeah. Apple had the witchblade Queen yeah, what if Janet Reno had the witchblade and her hand is chopped off so I mean th- there's a lot of gags in there that was just it was just funny to see that stuff but I'm curious then as you look back on your time you know with witchblade with Top Cow but what is your most vivid memory like when you think ah oh, witchblade was this or Witchblade, you know, we had to promote it here or talk about it here. Like, what what do you recall was the biggest moment? Well, before you asked me, like, when did I know that we had something? And I remember right after Witchblade, sometime in between issue one and two, Mike Turner and I, Mike had never like done a convention. Probably, I mean, we met him at San Diego Con, but I don't, he never like went anywhere on his own yet, like no signings or anything. So he and I got invited to this convention in Tampa. That wasn't really a convention. It was like a, it was more like a retailer show. But actually the guy, James Brightbeal, who ended up, he was part of uh, CrossGen Comics eventually, but this is before CrossGen. So we got invited to the show in Tampa to do a signing for Witchblade number one. And he and I were like, sharing this hotel room together and we weren't really getting along it was a weird time because like this is like my ego i shouldn't be talking about this but it's my ego but he was like totally like surpassing me in popularity and it was kind of bumming me out i was kind of pissed off like uh when issue one came out because there were parts of it like i said at the beginning when you were asking me i i wanted new york to be like important in the story and i, I remember having him like showing him reference of a of like a police station you know on whatever 19th street or something in new york and and he drew it like as if it was in california and there were like palm trees and stuff and I got all pissed <laughs> off and I'm thinking in my head like oh this kind of stuff like people are gonna get upset about it you know <laughs> it's gonna bother people that it doesn't look right so we go out to this this show in Tampa and we're sharing a hotel room and actually while we were sharing the hotel room someone from another company tried to call him to hire him and I was like sitting there and I'm like what how did they get your phone number at a, at a hotel in, in Tampa and then we end up going to this thing and huge lines like of, uh, of fans, of retailers, like everyone is waiting in line for him. A couple of people for me, but 98% for him. And it was, it's like out the door, like, like we're the only creators at the show. And everyone was out just like, it was like hours and hours and hours of, of signing issue one. And that's what made me realize a couple of things. I was like, wow, this guy's really popular because everyone really was there to see him and get sketches from him and talk to him. A couple of people for me, it was cool. And like at that point, it didn't bother me anymore. I wasn't like, you know, maybe it bothered me a little, but you know, I mean, I've gotten more humble since then. So that kind of stuff doesn't bother <laughs> me anymore. Plus, I realized then, you know, the art is so much more important, you know, especially to the people who are fans of our stuff. So that's one thing. The second thing is like the book was popular he was popular and no one cared about the issues that I had with the story like at that point we were still getting like physical mail and like probably like people posting on forums not one person mentioned any of the issues that I had so 
that humbled me too. Like that made me realize that this guy is the one who knows like what people care about. And I know what I care about. And I know like Christina and I could sort of do a story that it'll resonate with them, but they're there for him. You know, like, like we're, we're dressing and kind of once I had that realization, it was cool watching him. Like once I was able to get past like this weird ego thing of this guy who I brought into the company surpassing me and becoming this like huge thing. I don't know. I guess it's a weird thing to experience. It was amazing to watch him grow you know, and watch his humility, like stay through everything that was happening to him. Like there were business decisions that he needed to make, like when he ended up going to Aspen and stuff, but he was always humble and he was always good to everyone around him. But it was, it was just, it was cool being able to have this like ringside seat to watch his ascension. And to me, that Tampa place is where it started in this thing, just like seeing him for what he really was and actually being on the inside of his world. Because since we were sharing a hotel room, like I said, I got to hear someone trying to lure him over to another company, like while I was sitting there. And that's, he was like an open book. There was not much subterfuge with him. You know, like if people were trying to hire him, he'd be like, Hey Mark, you know, people are trying to hire me. Um, And not like in a, like he could have kicked me out of the room. He could have been like, oh, I can't talk now. Let's not talk. But <laughs> no, he was like, he didn't mind me hearing it because he knew I was looking for his best interest too. So it was cool. It was a, it, it was a, he and I shared hotel rooms like for years at conventions and stuff. And then um, we got along really well. That's awesome. Now, I do have to ask just very quickly because this is a question that comes up a lot when we post about Witchblade stuff. Our followers, you know, and our listeners are just like, whatever happened to Christina Z? Where is she? What did she do? Like, are you still in touch with her? Is she still in any type of publishing? Like, what, what is her direction? Now? Um, before she was with me, she had been writing like music reviews and stuff. I think, I think she still does that once in a while. Oh, okay. I'm not sure what she does. I think she's like a, an inspector or something. I saw her uh, maybe last year too at a convention. She still is around. Okay. I don't think she, I mean, she liked comics, but I don't think she really felt like the huge need to, to be doing it. Um, she's doing all right though. We talked okay. about her. That's good to hear. Yeah, I, I know the fans are just interested. They're like, wait, I'm just curious. So ultimately then, just as we get to kind of the end of this story, like what led to your departure from Top Cow? And then what do you think about the legacy of Witchblade since that time, since you moved on? In the early 2000s, Brad, who I talked about a few times, we ended up developing a relationship with John Woo. Like he was going to produce something for us and that ended up not happening. But Brad ended up going to work for John Woo for this game company that he was starting and he asked me if I wanted to join him and at that point at Top Cow I kind of felt like I'd done my part you know I was looking for something new uh, <laughs> prior to working at Top Cow I'd never worked at a place for more than three years in a row and I was already at Top Cow for 11 uh, 1993 to 2004 so I kind of thought maybe it was time and um, it just seemed like an interesting opportunity that I couldn't pass up so I left Top Cow to go work with uh, with John Woo and I, I love the way they've, they've kept going you know I think a lot of the stuff that they, that they ended up doing with the Witchblade was stuff that I was hoping to do, like, you know, connecting the Witchblade and the darkness into some bigger... I think um, <laughs> we put it in the, in, the, in the good hands of Matt Hawkins, you know, who, when we hired him, he had been doing um, the Arthurian book. Uh, he was really into lore, you know, like a lot of the stuff that he's created and written since he came to Top Cow. You know, he's done Postal and, and like all these different projects where he does a lot of research. Like he was really into like the whole Arthurian mythology. And it seemed like he would get into the Witchblade mythology and trying to connect the different mythologies of the characters. And that's what he's done. And, um, and I think he did well with it. I think he spearheaded the manga witchblade stuff that came out and the, that's the other witchblade tv show that came out there was the anime and i thought that was really cool so yeah i like what they've been doing with it i think it's cool 
That's great. So what are you doing these days, though, if people want to check in and find out what's Dave Wall up to? Well, I'm the editor-in-chief at Zenoscope. I've been there for a couple of years. I've been doing a lot of writing for them recently. I write the Oz series that we have coming out. We're in the midst of one Oz, uh, Kingdom of the Lost. The second issue, I think, just came out, and the third issue is coming out soon. And I'm also like editing a lot of other books there. We have this cool Van Helsing Kickstarter that we're starting to do. Um, actually, I think I announced it here for the first time. Probably shouldn't even talk about it yet. Oh, well. <laughs> That's going to be coming in December. And I think Zenoscope does a lot of cool stuff. We're a small little world where, you know, Dave Franchini and I and and our bosses, Joe and Ralph, kind of create the outlines for the stories and we bring in writers to work with. It's a fun job. That's fantastic. Yeah. If you guys are curious about that world of Zenoscope, we have a a three-part interview series that we've done with these guys. And we still have to get Ralph's interview out. It was so long. It's taken forever for me to edit. (laughs) So so that third part is coming, but... (laughs) All in good time. But thank you so much. Uh, this was really fun, David. Like, I, I really enjoyed all your stories. And just like the little offhanded comments. I'm like, we can do a whole episode just on that or this or that. Because you, you've worked with everybody. You've been all over the place. So that, that's fantastic. But again, well, thank you so much. For, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to have you. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.